All right, let's turn to Ephesians chapter uh, number 4. Yeah, that'll be good. Let's do that. Ephesians chapter number 4. And uh, <clears throat> we've been talking about uh, the new covenant and uh, its implications, what it is, what it isn't. Um, and uh, as you know, I, if, I always find my way back to the book of Ephesians somehow. I don't know why I'm always there. It always happens. Uh, I seriously contemplated just simply reading the book of Ephesians in a dramatized way this morning. <laughs> I did. I was like, you know, I'll read it, and I'm like, all right, and I'm going to sit here and talk about all this stuff, and I'm going to give my perceived nuggets of wisdom about it, or I could just read what it says because that's what originally happened, you know, and just let it sit there. I remember I was in a church in North Carolina, um, and they're everywhere, and uh, there was this guy that uh, he dressed up like an... Uh, like an apostle or something. I think he was dressed up like James. And he preached an entire sermon because he had memorized the book of James. So he just acted it back out like, you know, he was like delivering this message for the first time. It was actually pretty interesting. My, the only thing, see, my brain, I'll get these hang-ups and I can't get past them. He was delivering this thing as a sermon and then it hung up in my brain. I went, wait a minute, he didn't preach that, he wrote it. And so then I was like having to muscle my way past that the whole time, so pray for me. Just be glad you don't have to live with me. All right, so Ephesians chapter number four. Um, we've, we're fortunate that uh, we are in a church that uh, I feel like grasps the new covenant very well. That's not to say there are others that do not. I'm just saying we're fortunate that we're in a fellowship to where we We've got a pretty good grasp on that. I know some people, some people have come in from here and there, and it might be a new concept to you. That's why we're, rec we're going back and covering some of those things. And I don't want to, by what I'm going to approach this morning, by any way, think that we're like trying to nullify any of that. We're actually building on it. Uh, one of the things that uh, you'll notice in the epistles that Paul writes is that uh, he doesn't purposely break them into sections any more than you would break a letter into sections, as it were. Uh, but you can kind of break it apart and kind of see how the topic changes as you move through there. Uh, theologians often, not myself, other theologians, I'm not a theologian, I just quote them because it's easier, and uh, often break Paul's epistles into doctrinal and practical aspects. Uh, those two are not separate from one another. Uh, we sometimes approach the practical aspects of behavioral things, and behavior is not a bad word, by the way. It's just not, okay? It's all right to talk about it. Um, well, we tend to break those two apart. And we need to say there's things that wrap around what we believe, and then there's just things that wrap around what we do, uh, and that is, could not be further from the truth. Uh, everything about what we believe is a whole in the person of Jesus Christ. So uh, I know that uh, it's, when I was in college, we had to go through a course, I think it was a year long, called Systematic Theology. And it's, yeah, it's just as exciting as it sounds. And you had to go through... And, you know, it took everything and put it in these categories. Now, for education purposes, I get it. You know, you go to the categories and you look at them. But if you're not careful, uh, we get into this, uh, this mentality where everything's sectioned off. And everything has its own place and its own box. And that's not true. Uh, everything runs together. So I said all that uh, to say this morning we're going to be talking about the second half of the epistle and how grace plays out in our lives. This isn't you should be and you should be and you should be. That's not what this is. What it is is it's what does grace do? What does the person of grace do? And when we talk about grace, understand it is equal and synonymous with Christ. 
so when we talk about grace, we talk about grace with a capital G, uh, not necessarily a lowercase g. Not that grace is our God, God is our God, but I'm getting down a rabbit hole I didn't intend on, so let's read the scriptures and bring it back here. So Ephesians chapter, look at chapter number 3, because I, I'm, I'm weird, I like context, you know, except for when I'm arguing with my wife and then context has no place in my arguments. Ephesians chapter number 3, and I want to read the last two verses of this chapter, 20 and 21, and we're going to move into chapter 4. Because, you know, when Paul wrote his epistle, he wrote the number 20 and then wrote that sentence at, and that's not what he did. All right? So there's a context that moves through here that I'm afraid I don't want to miss. So in chapter 3 and verse number 20, I'm reading from the New King James Version, if you want to flip through it on a different one on your phone. Uh, In verse number 19, it says, To know the love of Christ... Excuse me, look at verse number 20. I'm reading the wrong one. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. Amen. Now, I could talk about that verse for quite some time. That verse isn't saying that we just tell, we think of something, and God's going to do it bigger than what we think he's doing. He's actually talking about the prayer that Paul prayed before that, about what Paul was going to do. And then we think it's going to be this great, and God steps in and says, no, it's even bigger than what you thought it was going to be. That's what he's talking about. Uh, God's not working off our machinations uh, and operating that way. He is giving us the thoughts. He's the one that's working into us what it is to think, believe, and even imagine Uh, We are not the basis for those things. And so he says that he's going to do all these things. So in verse number 21, Jesus Christ might have a glory in the church. And then he moves in to this next verse in verse 1. He says, I therefore, and if you are any, uh, if you've been to church long enough, you've probably heard this saying, anytime you see therefore or wherefore, you stop and see what it's there for, Right? He says, I therefore, because of the glory of God within the church, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. What a way to talk about himself. He could have said, the apostle born out of due time. That's what he could have said. He could have said, the guy that started 13 churches. Remember Antioch, me, you know? Remember Bethsaida, me? (laughs) You know, he could have done all that stuff. But he says, "The, the prisoner of the Lord... And then interestingly enough, Paul in all his authority doesn't say, I command you. He says, I beseech you. That's what he says. He says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called. Do you see how these things are connected now? See, it's not like Paul's just starting this complete new thought. He's saying the glory of God within the church. He says, because of this, because God's going to do bigger than you could think. You can whip it up in your mind, but it's probably not even in the same stratosphere. It's in a different place. We can have some really good ideas, but God's like, mine are better, I'm sorry. Again, if you're married, you understand how this works. But (laughs) I'm just kidding. My wife's ideas are great. They're fabulous. I have several illustrations in here just because of my wonderful wife. Verse number one, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness and longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this word, this one word that we just kind of skimmed over, he uses this word walk in verse number 1. This is a word that Paul's going to use throughout chapter 4, 5, and 6 in a number of different areas. 
Uh, I find this very interesting. He didn't use the word behavior. He didn't use the word obey. He used the word walk. Uh, Because there is a practical aspect to the new covenant realities in our lives that Paul wants us to experience as real. He doesn't want us to just talk about them. He wants them to be real for us. I know in my mind, I tend to get very ethereal about things like that. I want to understand the concepts and put a bow on them and be like, here they are, you know. Congratulations, it's a boy. Here it is. You know, that's what I want to do. And I want to understand it all. And I, even though I hate math, I hate math so much, I like to be able to put together theological concepts in my head. But if I'm not careful, that's all they'll be. And so that's what Paul does is he steps in and he says, walk. And he uses this phrase a number of times. Watchman Nee in his book, Sit, Walk, Stand, has an entire section where he talks about how the Christian life is to, the grace of the Christian life is to walk out in this way. It's a great book if you've not seen it. It's only a couple of pages. Brian, you can read through that one easily. You should get it. You probably have it, don't you? He does. And I've got the picture book version, like, you know, the little preschool one. I got that one, so it worked for me. When I was about eight years old or nine years old, I uh, went into my living room in our house out in St. Elmo, and uh, we had an RCA console television. Like, it sat on the floor, and you had to push the buttons to change it. You millennials know nothing about that, right? Now, you boomers are like, let me tell you a story. But uh, this one, it was a color TV. What's that? Exactly, exactly. So I sat down in the, you know, uh, know, cross legs, crisscross applesauce, boom, right there in the floor, and I'm watching cartoons, which meant in my day it was either an afternoon after school or a Saturday uh, because in America that was the only time you could watch cartoons, all right, and which is how it probably should be again. But anyway, so I sat down to watch cartoons, and I don't remember all the details of what the cartoon was, I'm sorry, but I was watching the cartoons sitting there for about 30 or 45 minutes, and I went to get up, and my legs didn't work. Now, I'm not talking about like they fell asleep didn't work. I'm talking about like they were not responding to the commands of my brain not working. Like my brain was saying legs move, and my legs were like, nah. That's what, they were, that's what happened. I just sat there, and at first I was like, something's not right. But then I began to panic because I, I was paralyzed from my waist down. My legs would not work. And so my mom comes rushing in, and uh, she's like, well, you know, come on, parents, let's just be accurate. Your first thing is to suspect anything your kids tell you, right? You're like, what do you mean your legs don't work? Maybe that's just me. I don't know. <clears throat> like, your legs don't work. What are you talking about? I'm like, no, they don't work. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, they don't work. You know, I'm like sign languaging it. You know, I'm doing whatever language I got. I was like, they don't work. Well, then she began to realize I wasn't joking around. And so she picks me up. My legs are just hanging there like these noodles. They just, there was nothing. I could feel them, but they would not operate. So my mom rushes me to the doctor, and they thought that I had some kind of, maybe it was some spinal thing, spinal meningitis, maybe something like that. Sounds scary. I had something that they were thinking was wrong with my spine, and they were telling her that more than likely this, I had some infection in my spinal column and that I may not ever walk again. Now, as a kid, I wasn't paying attention to any of that. Well, then they determined that I had this infection in my hips, which is a weird thing, and it just did something to the nerves in my legs, and they just would not respond. It was an odd thing. So the, everybody calmed down until that night. The doctor walked in to give me a shot, two shots, in each of my hips, 
which an eight-year-old boy looked like he pulled out a samurai sword of a needle. I mean, that suck. It was long now. Don't get me wrong. He stuck it in my hip this way, straight down into the joint of my hip and pumped the antibiotics straight to the, you know, to the, the area there. Um, it was, they literally strapped me down to the bed because if I moved and something happened, they, so I'm strapped down to this bed, I'm screaming my guts out, my dad's standing there, my mom's crying, my dad's answer to everything was power, so he was like holding me down, you know. Uh, so they give me these shots, you know, the trauma's over. I did remember getting a plastic bulldozer, battery-powered bulldozer my dad bought me as a result of the trauma, so win, Kyle. And... Uh, <laughs> Then I got to sit there in front of that same TV and just sit there and play with cars for a week. It took a week before my legs would come back. Uh, and then when they did come back, you know, I've never been completely immobile for that amount of time that I can, that's the only time in my life that I've ever not been able to move. And even when you stand up, like being on airplanes is tough for me. If you're over six foot tall, you can feel my pain, right? Uh, and you're in an airplane, it kind of like sometimes on an airplane, if I'm crammed in there and I stand up, my, my hips will still hurt to this day. Uh, my right hip, uh, it will, like if I move it in a certain way, it feels like it's going to like pop out of place or something. It's weird. And I remember standing up to walk and like kind of my mom having to help me and whatnot. And at eight or nine years old, you don't realize how important walking is until you can't do it. You know, at 43 years old, I think that I've probably taken walking for granted up to this point until my mind goes back to that story. And as a Christian, I take my walking for granted a lot of the times too. Because I think to myself that all my choices are just the best choices. You know, like all my ideas are just good ideas. And uh, I know it's hard to believe, but, you know, yo, they ain't, all right? Uh, and I make a lot of incredibly stupid decisions, all right? And we're not going to get into a testimony time, Angela. Relax. I do make some bad decisions in my, in my life. The reality of the fact here is the way we walk matters. The direction we go matters. The choices that we make matter. Now, the choices that we make and the direction that we go and the things that we do or don't do or whatever the case may be doesn't change God's mind about us. All right? Well, that's very important to understand because what it's going to do is it's going to, re, it's going to write your motivation for why you make the decisions that you make. Why you... And I shouldn't even say decisions your willingness to cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God is what I should say. Legalism puts all the effort on your ability to decide. The new covenant is your cooperative life activity with the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit, see, we give ourselves so much credit, don't we? I don't know about you. I'll take all the credit for all the good, you know, I won't take any of the credit for like if something goes right, but I'll take all the credit if it goes south. I'll just be like, it was me. It was me. I'm a terrible, and I can't believe I did such a thing. And my wife is like, what are you talking about, you know? In the Christian life, it's about our cooperation with the Spirit of God. Cooperation. So when Paul says walk, understand you're not walking, you're not like some, you know, rock song where you're walking alone or some Green Day song or whoever sings that song. You're not walking along somewhere in a power ballad as some lone wolf. Listen, if you're a believer, you don't have the luxury of being a lone wolf anymore. It's gone. And I know my personal mentality is, is I like to go strike out on my own so much. But the Holy Spirit of God is never going to allow that to happen. You know, I used to struggle with my salvation when I first trusted Christ, and I used to ask myself, well, how do I know I'm saved? How can I really know that I'm saved? 
<clears throat> and I heard one of my pastors in North Carolina say at one time, he said, the number one reason I know that I'm not saved is God doesn't let me get away with anything. And that used to scare me, but now I kind of like it. He doesn't let me just go off. He's always there. I'm never off into a place to where he's not at. I'm never making a step that he's not stepping with me. What did Paul say in the book of Ephesians? He said, he said, do you not know that when you join your body unto a harlot, what you're doing? Because you and the Lord are one. There's nowhere that you're going, he's not going. There's nothing that you're going to do that he's not there doing it with you. That is the mind-blowing thing in the new covenant. Because of the old covenant, the Spirit of God came and went and came and went and came and went, didn't he? He would come upon a person and dwell a person for a special task, and then he, he, he would be like, all right, we're done. Good luck. You know what I mean? Why? Because Christ had not yet died. And in Acts chapter 2, things changed, didn't they? The Spirit of God indwelt us, and he's always with us. My walk matters. It matters. Your walk matters, and grace tells me it matters. So this morning, very quickly, uh, I want us to see that we're placed into the life of Christ, a life that's defined by him, and a life that is lived via his relationship with us. This is not a matter of us getting connected, because we're connected. It's a matter of living from the connection. So I want, to, I want to show that we're called to walk in a way that reflects our identity. I'm not talking about walking in a way that promotes our abilities. I'm talking about walking in a way in which promotes who he is, that is reflective of who he is. So uh, I'm going to try to do something very quickly, and I'm going to skip a lot of verses, and I hate doing that because it just my mind just gets hung up on them. I want to talk about every single one of them. But we're going to look at these sections where Paul talks about what it means to walk, okay? So the first one is here in chapter 4 in verses 1 through 4. And the context of what Paul is talking about here, when we go to this idea of walk, what we want to immediately do is we want to jump in and we want to start nailing all these different behaviors. But we want to look at it within context. So when he talks about a worthy walk here in chapter 4, the first thing he brings up is a walk of unity within the church. That's the first thing he brings up. Because notice what he says. And when he says you, a lot of times because we're from the West, we think me, just me, the single me, that's it, all right? But he's talking, when he says you in this letter, he's talking to a group of people when he writes this. He even uses the word you all a couple times in there. That's how you know Paul's from South Alabama. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I beg you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called. And how is this walked out? What does it look like, this unity? He says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he illustrates that with the oneness of the Godhead below. Now, uh, when we look at this, it's important to understand that we're talking about unity, not conformity. All right? Religion seeks conformity. The, the, the Spirit of God is going to seek unity. If the, the, the most diverse place on planet Earth should be the, the church itself. And it is, if you stop and you really think about it. Now, we're here as this one group this morning. But there's a multitude of groups meeting this morning. And if we could find an area big enough and we just all walked into it and we were to scan the landscape of who's there, 
there would be a massive diversity of different kinds of people, so to speak, different backgrounds, races, former religions, gender, whatever the case may be. There's going to be male, there's going to be female, there's going to be black, white, there's going to be all the colors of the rainbow in that representation because the church is diverse. But you know what you run into when you run into diversity? You run into a lot of problems too because we just don't understand each other. And let me just say this. I'm going to say it. i got time. You can fix it later. Uh, <laughs> the problem we have in America is not a demand for diversity. It is a demand for conformity. We are demanding for other people to conform to us in some way. The only person that we should, we should be conformed into is Christ. That's it. Paul says it. We're to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. To be conformed into any other mold is to sidestep the call of God on the believer at the very minimal. And so he, he, he describes what this, this attitude is like. And I'm not saying I got this nailed. If you know me, you know this. Don't laugh. You know this. In verse 2, he talks about with all lowliness and gentleness. And here's, here's the, where it sums up. He says, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Now listen, I am not a Greek scholar, nor am I the son of a Greek scholar. But I know enough to know that verse means this, that sometimes you just have to deal with where people are at. You just have to deal with it. You have to put up with it, all right? In love, all right? Listen, and this room, we're not all in the same place. We don't, there are people in this room whose personality rub you sideways. They do. At hug time, you don't want to hug them. You go to the bathroom because you're scared, all right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I'm exaggerating, but am I? You know, uh, listen, it's the, here's the reality of it's just true. In any group of people, there is always a difficulty when it comes to that area. So what does Paul say? Paul says, listen, you want to walk worthy? You, do, you meet with people and rate, relate to people where they're at, not where you want them to be. I mean, I have expectations of people that's ridiculous. Don't, don't look at me like that because you do too. You do. You have expectations on people that you've never said to them. You've never even said it to yourself out loud, but you think it in your mind, and it makes a difference in how you treat them. Right? It happens. I'm not, you know, I don't believe in a lot of psychology as far as that's concerned, but I do understand enough about this that there's something that goes on in an unverbal level in our being that affects the way that we think, the way that we act, and the way that we treat other people. So he just says this, hey, put up with them. You want to walk worthy? Put up with where they're at. Bear up underneath where they're at, not where you want them to be. And he says that to, we're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know what I like about that so much? When you endeavor, it's an active process. It's not passive. You have to, the, the Spirit of God is going to lead you forward to engage in a work of unity. He's going to say, endeavor, reach out. Don't draw back, reach out. Now you, now, you know when the Spirit of God is telling you to reach out in different areas. You know what I mean? And in a, in a general rule of thumb, we're open to where people are. That's endeavoring to keep the spirit of unity in the bonds of peace. 
It's not passive, it's active. Unity in the church is a purpose collaboration between you, the Spirit, and everyone else. So we see this walk, this behavior that Paul refers to, first off, as a matter of unity. The other, if you'll look with me, oh, now I'm going to skip verses. That's not to say these verses aren't important. It's not to say that I don't want to comment on all of them or anything, but we only have until 3.30, so i got to get this done. <laughs> some, of the, some of you folks that are visiting with us the first time, I'm just kidding. We'll be out of here by 1.15, I swear. All right, so... Chapter 4, look at verse number 17. Now we're moving down into a different idea where he brings in this idea of walk again. So we looked at a walk of unity, which I called, I had a second point. It took me a while to think of this. I'm going to give it to you. We're called to walk befittingly. Oh, hello, King James. All right. Secondly, uh, we're called to walk differently, which is purity. In Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse number 17. He says, I say this therefore. There's that word again. Therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should... Now, get this. this, this people say they don't understand the Bible. I mean, it is, it's plain, all right? It's pretty plain, all right? Look what he says. He says that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. That's pretty simple. You don't have to have a Bible degree, and I don't have to have a Bible degree to understand that. And you say, well, I don't know any Gentiles. Sure you do. You know, that's all you know, all right? That's it. That's the only thing that you know. Now, I'm not saying, and this is very important, that our walk in Christianity, our unity with the Spirit, is not culturally determined. I'm not looking out into the world and reacting. All right, I'm not doing that. I'm not looking out and saying, all right, well, they're doing X, so I'm going to do this. Well, they're doing that, so I'm going to do this. That's not what he's talking about because he delineates things much more clearly in a moment. Matter of fact, I would say that he gives us an idea of what this means that's so clear we can just rid ourselves of a lot of question marks in our mind because notice how he describes it. He says, you don't walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. There's that phrase again. In the futility of their mind. You say, what does that mean? Well, let me ask you a question. You just answer it to yourself in your mind. What do the average, what does the average, what does the world on an average think about the sanctity of a marriage relationship? What does the world on average think about gender issues? What does the world on average think about pornography? What do they think about on average disciplining, raising children? You see, you know what the futility of the mind is, don't you? We can look around and we see it. We don't, we don't have to scratch our head and be like, what is he talking about? No, we know what he's talking about. You live amongst it. I live amongst it every day. Every day we see it. And if you watch the news, bless your heart, get some, you're going to need blood pressure medication, dude. I, 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 listen, I like to listen to Matt Walsh only because he, is the, he actually is more sarcastic than me and a bigger pessimist than I am. So finally, somebody's beat me at this stuff, so I'm all about this guy. I listen to him, and I even have to stop that sometimes. Why? Because I get bombarded with just all the issues of the world. And the issues creep close, don't they? We don't have to reach out very far for we're bumping into the futility of worldly thinking, the emptiness of it. He goes on and he says that this mindset has their understanding darkened. Why? Because they're alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that's in them. Because of the blindness of their hearts. Who being past feeling. 
have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. What a description. I mean, I don't really even, I mean, I'm going to comment on it for five minutes, but I don't really, I mean, how do you really, how do you improve on such a thing? I mean, when we look, there's so much stuff I want to say, man. (laughs) I just want to say it orderly so it's not like a, a nuclear blast, or there at least be an assault rifle or something. I can't say that in church. You know, <laughs> anyways, I think you know what I mean. When we look out into the world, your mind, the way that you think, is constantly under assault, constantly. I, last week, I went through my uh, phone, and I just, I just, I went through the music, and I just took a lot of the music out. Because I found myself giving myself over to that stuff, and it began, you know, I would listen to it all day. Now, Ben, I can cut out some wood while I'm listening to some, like, mid-'90s punk rock. Don't get me wrong. I can't, all right? I can put it in there, and I'm gone, you know? I turn on a day to remember, and it is on. You know, I'm cutting out wood, all right? It's happening. <laughs> but I began to, this, these, this, these thought patterns came into my head. You know what I mean? And I'm not against all music that's, you know, necessarily secular. I'm not. I'm telling you what I thought. You can think what you want to about it, all right? My point being is that I was being assaulted by what I thought. There were things being put into my mind that I was then adopting as the way that I was seeing everything, and it was, it was causing a problem. I was beginning to adopt the way that the Gentiles walk in some areas. So I had to make a choice. I had, do I want to listen to this? Do I want to continue to back? You know, a a lot of the things that we struggle with aren't really a struggle. They're just a refusal. We're just refusing to look at that for what it is and make a decision about it. And listen to what the Holy Spirit's saying. I'm not saying it's easy. It's hard. I literally deleted some of the music off my phone, loaded it back up, and then deleted it off again. So I don't want to make you sound like I'm like some kind of, you know, you know, friar monk that put on my monk robe and deleted everything off. I levitated three feet and boom, I'm not interested in mid-2000s metalcore anymore because I am, all right? And I want to listen to it, but I have to ask myself the question, is it doing anything for me? No, it's not right now. Maybe in 10 years I can listen to it again, but right now, no. Oh, man. Now I'm up here thinking about Data remember songs. I can't believe it. Anyways, so alienated from the life of God, ignorance, blindness. That, the phrase that caught my attention was past feeling. You know what that means? They do not care. You know how the world behaves the way it does? They do not care. They don't care about you. They don't care about your kids. They don't care about any of that stuff. They don't care what they put on TikTok that sexualizes your teenage girls. They don't care. They want to turn you into a piece of just an object that somebody... And see, a lot of times we talk about things like this, and we say, well, you got to protect your body, and you do need to protect your body. But I'll tell you this, it goes way deeper than your body. And you will place an assault on your soul that you will be living with when you're 30, 40, and 50 years old. And we could, we could march a line of people up on this stage and back down the other side that would all give testimony to the fact that in some way they gave up ground because they didn't care in the moment, and now they have to live with that. Scars heal, but they're still scars. 
And we still have to, then it's just another stronghold that we place in our lives. And so what does God say? God says, don't. Just don't walk that way. I have a way for you. And I'm not saying it's just as easy as you flipping on a switch. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, is that the way God lays it out, he lays it out this way for a reason. And I would default look at it through the lens that he says, then I would default look at it through what I'm told about my behavior. I'm told about my behavior that there's certain things I just can't help because that's the way my dad was. You know, and there's certain things I can't help because that's just the way that I was raised. But there are things that I can help. By the Spirit of God living in me, I don't have to be. I can deal with these things. He goes on and he says, i got to hurry up. The, the sh- if I leave your wife back in children's church too long, I, she's probably seen enough MMA to take me out after church. I get it. <clears throat> so in verse number 920, what does he say? He, he gives this, I mean, it sounds depressing, to be honest with you. But then he comes in and he's like, I'm not going to leave you hanging there because in verse 20 he says, but you have not so learned Christ. He goes on and he says, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Now this isn't a textbook thing he's talking about. When he's, we see the word learned and the first thing we think about is where's the test? Is it multiple choice or is it essay? And how much time do I have to take this thing? That's not what this word learned means. It's the idea of learned from being in relationship with. It's the idea of knowing someone by being with someone. Uh, My wife, for example, we've been married for 20 years next month. And I'm just kidding, one year. (laughs) So next month we'll be married for a year. I could call Angela's mom and ask Angela's mom a bunch of questions about Angela. Or I could just spend time with Angela. You see, a lot of the times we approach God from that way. We want to find out things about him. And those things can all be true. And a lot of the times, I'm sure they probably are. But the difference between me just having facts about Christ and me knowing Christ is me operating in the facts about who he is in a relationship. I mean, I know how Angela wants the towels hung up in the bathroom. It was a hard-fought battle, but I won, all right? Now we're working on dirty clothes, all right? We're getting closer to the dirty clothes basket, you know? I'm just, you know, I back up, and I'm like, three! And the underwear just hit the back of the chair. That's fine. I'll find them later. I know which ones are dirty and clean, all right? Or do I? But (laughs) I hope so. So what does he say? You've not learned Christ. If you've indeed have heard him and you've been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Truth and Jesus are synonymous. He says in verse 22. Now, he could have said a lot of things right here that we say all the time in church that he did not say. All right? He just turned, and it struck me. I actually wrote this down in my journal because it struck me like probably for the first time in my life, unfortunately. He didn't ask us to pray about anything. He didn't even take into consideration how much we might think it was a sacrifice. When he says, put off the, the, put off the former conduct. He just said it. He just said, take the conduct that we're talking about, the, contact that we, the conduct that we all know about in ourselves, and the Holy Spirit of God has said, hey, what about this over here? Let's, 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 can we talk about this? Now, isn't it interesting 
that. I remember in legalism, one of my scariest verses that I've ever heard in the New Testament was grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. You, you heard that one before? That's a scary verse, right? You hear that one and you're like, oh man, I'm, it's freaking me out. Now I remember I was preaching through Ephesians uh, one time, and I, I think it's in Ephesians. I can't even remember now. And uh, came upon that verse, and I was like, oh man, what am I going to do with this? I'm scared to death of it. You know, I don't even know what to say about it. I like literally tabled the whole sermon series because I didn't know what to do with that one phrase, you know. So I was like, I'll just push the pause button on this guy, and we'll just whip something out from four years ago Sunday. Boop. I know you don't remember it. We all know you don't. <laughs> all right. <laughs> and so I remember coming back to it again and uh, praying about it. And the Holy Spirit, you know, when we say the Holy Spirit speaks to us, um, all, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, he is just simply confirming stuff that he already clearly said that we have not caught yet from Scripture. He's like, hey, what about that? We're like, oh, God spoke that. Oh, there it is. <laughs> you know? And so the Holy Spirit of God spoke to me, and he said, go back and look at the verse. I was like, I don't want to. So I went back, and I got all the, I've got all the commentaries spread out before thee. You know what I mean? All of them, big, thick books. they got the fancy bindings on them. They're fancy looking. i got them all over the place. i got all the programs. Everything's parsed out. You know, Still don't get what's going on. And the Holy Spirit said to me this in that moment, or put this thought in my mind, I guess I could put it this way. How can you grieve somebody that doesn't love you? I was like, well, that's a very good point. I thought to myself, when I do something stupid to myself, my neighbor three doors down is not hurt because of what I've done to myself. But the Holy Spirit of God is. You see, the grief of the Holy Spirit of God is not him saying, all right, I'm out. When you get this squared away, I mean, you, I was with you this whole time. Now think about it. I was with you this whole time, and you couldn't get it right in that moment. So I'm just going to leave and ask you to get it right and then come back to me then? You see the, how much sense does that make? We couldn't get it right when we, if, if that was the way of thinking, if that was the framework that we operated in. We could say to ourselves, well, if the Holy Spirit isn't helping me, now he's saying I'm grieved, I can't help you. You're never going to get it right again so to speak, if it was about getting it right. I think you know what I'm saying. Maybe I need to watch my words here. My point being here is this. When he came along in verse 22 and he says, that former conduct, which is the old man, which, notice what it says, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Now, what's so interesting about this is, is overall what is kind of inferred here that, that people read into what he's not saying. He's not saying that your old man is a part of you and you've got to put the old man away. Romans chapter number 5, 6, 7, and 8 are very clear about what happened to your old man. He was nailed to the cross. He's dead. You know, we use phrases like, I gave my life to Jesus. Well, no, you didn't. I mean, I know that's a phrase, and I know what people mean when they say it, but you didn't. You did not. Jesus Christ pointed, the Holy Spirit of God said, you. And you responded to that, and you said, here's my life. He said, thank you very much. I'm going to nail this up here with the Son of God now. It's done. That's dead. I've been crucified with Christ, is what he said. The old man has been put to death. He's talking about the deeds of that old man that still live right up here in your gray matter. That swash around up there when you're by yourself. And when you have the opportunity or when it's, something's presented to you or, the, or whatever the case may be. I hate trying to make up scenarios. I'm terrible at it. He says, it grow, notice this, that way of thinking grows corrupt. 
It doesn't say that it is. The tense of the Greek language gives the idea that it is something that is going forward in an uparching curve. It's growing corrupt, which means it's not going to do anything but get worse. And how, how many of us can raise our hands and say, yep, it got worse. It got worse and worser and more worselier and all the incorrect English that I can add in there, which I could have done without even trying, but you're welcome. And then he says in verse number 23, see, this is, this is what, in verse number 21 and 22, this is what I call the deconstruction of thinking. And boy, we hear, I don't know if you're in on uh, what's going on with, in a lot of the Christendom right now, but that word deconstruction is a big word right now. You know, there's all these famous people that are deconstructing their faith. They refer to themselves as ex-evangelicals or whatever the case may be, where they're like Joshua Harris, the guy that wrote that book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Uh, he's deconstructed in faith, and he's no longer a believer anymore. Uh, there was some guy that was teaching for Together for the Gospel. I can't remember his name. He deconstructed his faith, which is a fancy word. Deconstruction, deconstruction is a fancy word for I denied my faith in Christ. That's what that is. And if that's the case, here's the thing. I'm not slamming those people, but let's not use words that the Bible doesn't use about it. And when we deconstruct, the only thing that needs to be deconstructed is our old way of thinking. Because he goes forward in verse 23, says, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which God has created, excuse me, which was created according to God, and this is a really interesting phrase, in true righteousness and holiness. You know what that tells me? That there is a false holiness and righteousness. That word true gives the idea of a genuineness about it, a reality that's behind it a source that comes from what's true, not just this, this show. Oh, I've been in the show. I remember when I was in college, I'm going I'm to have to stop, though I really wanted to get Chapter 5 as well. <clears throat> I was in college, and I was wrapped up in um, the fundamentalist religion. I was an independent fundamentalist Baptist. Now, I'm not saying that every, when I give you the story, this is very important to me. I'm not saying everyone that, that is in that church movement or anything of that nature are bad people. They are not. I'm not saying that they're wicked people that are promoting something to try to draw, drag everybody down. They are not. I'm telling you a story about me, not them, okay? And I was in Bible college. <clears throat> when I was Bible college, I, didn't, I had like one suit, so I had to... I, as a matter of fact, I sold my car. It was a 1987 Ford Tempo that had a 1989 Isuzu pickup truck bumper on it. <laughs> Everything was operated by a toggle switch. You would love this thing, you know. To crank it, toggle switch, fan motor toggle switch, air conditioner toggle switch. I think I even had to turn the toggle switch on for the headlights. Anyways, I had this thing. I sold it, and I bought two suits, two for 200 from men's warehouse. What was that thing called? Remember you can get those suits, those cheap suits? I bought one, and I bought a jet black double-breasted suit. Why? Because I saw some preacher wear it one day, and I was like, I want one of those. It, that thing was so hot. It was like being wrapped in a, a casket. It was terrible. <laughs> I mean, buttons here, and it buttons over there. And then I had a you know, long-sleeve shirt on, of course, because anybody, any self-respecting man that wears a suit coat, white cow wears a long-sleeve shirt, hey, man. And then I had on a tie. And then I had on some wingtip shoes, all black, of course, because if you're a pastor, you got to look like you're going to a funeral all the time. And so I had my black shoes on. They were shined to the hilt because I heard a guy tell a story one time that he preached the gospel and that I think, uh, who, what, what part of the military is a rear admiral? Is that? 
the Navy. Yeah, he was preaching, and this rear admiral got saved after he heard the gospel just simply because the man had shine shoes on. And I thought to myself, question that guy's conversion. Anyways, the... <laughs> So I thought to myself, all this mattered. And to an extent, I can see why people might think it matters. So I'm not downing it. But here's my point. I'm walking down, double-breasted suit, hair slicked back. That's what you do, too. Gel, so crusty. Anyway, I was walking down the hall. Friend was walking right next to me. And a professor that was there that I had a high amount of regard for, and actually still do, uh, walked by me. And he walked by us, and he stopped us. And he goes, and here is the future of fundamentalism. Can I tell you something? That went like a hyper-powered rocket fuel bullet straight to my ego and just pumped it up to the point where I thought I was going to explode and die. I'm like, this guy thinks I'm the future. Now I know he was horribly deluded, but nonetheless, (laughs) that statement did something to me. That one statement did something to me. And it made me think that as long as I could hold this line I am performing true and genuine holiness when I was not. I know me back then. I wasn't even close, all right? I mean, I, wasn't, I didn't even get into the ballpark. I was still like riding a bus to the parking lot, you know? I just was not close. And there is, as Jesus said, a form of godliness that denies the power thereof. You see, when we talk about behavior, we're not saying get the behavior thereof to get the power thereof. What the New Testament is saying is you have the ability to walk in a way that's beyond you, that you can't do on your own, and that the Holy Spirit of God is calling us into that walk. He's saying, come here. And I can promise you this. We can either deconstruct the old man or we can live with the damage that he brings, and there will be damage and it will be different than you think it will be you say well this isn't very uplifting but I'm telling you it don't have to be like that it doesn't have to be like that the Holy Spirit's saying he's not saying anything outside that's beyond the pale or the scope of anything that he's revealed to us he's only trying to reiterate what he's already said to us in a way that we will accept it in that moment He's saying things to us. He's saying things to us like, you have to listen to that. That's what he said to me. He's saying things to me, do you have to get that perturbed? Now, I'll still argue about that. We're working on it. I'll let you know next week, all right? He's saying these things. Why is he saying them? Is he like a cosmic killjoy? Is he up there ready to just shoot down every good and perfect thing that you can have in life? When the fact of the matter is, is there's one person that shot down every good thing in Buddy's life, and that was Buddy. I was the one that decided that I was going to walk according to the thoughts of the old man, and I'm the one that didn't make, it, make the bad decision. I'm the one that sinned. But you know what I think, what I'm thankful for? The Holy Spirit of God doesn't sit back and say, I told you so, like we do so much. He doesn't sit back and say, well, you deserved that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do any of those things. You know what he does? A lot of the times, and I love how uh, John Lynch puts this, and we're going to stop in a minute. I'm I'm taking too long. I apologize. I love the way that John Lynch puts it. He says uh, in his book, the 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 name of the book is called True Faced. He said a lot of people, and I'm paraphrasing, he said a lot of people think that Jesus, you walk up to one side, there's just this mountain in your life that you don't want there. 
If you're really born again, the truly born again person doesn't want it there. They don't because their heart's different. They're not as the other Gentiles are. Even when we make the decision to go climb in the garbage, our heart's screaming, no, you, this isn't you. We walk up to this mound of garbage in our lives and we feel like that we're on one side of the garbage and Jesus is on the other side of the garbage saying, get it out of the way and come to me. When the reality is, is that Jesus is standing right next to you looking at the same pile and saying, we're going to deal with this. Don't worry. It's a huge, there's two different ways of looking at that. One way makes you and your behavior the enemy of God. One way, one, the other way makes you the friend of God. And your behavior just something that God wants to cure in us that we might experience what he has. Uh, if you're a believer, don't run from these verses. Run to them. It's hard, I admit. I read them, and I'm like, oh, man, that's tough. They're there for a reason. Because of the Holy Spirit of God, it can be real in your life. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm just going to use the word that the, the Spirit of God wrote in this letter. It's the word alienated. Far away. Separate. Not close. That's where you live. Now, you don't have to live there. But that's where we all were by birth. By birth, we were born separated from God. Complete departure, alien from him. The cross and tomb of Jesus Christ has brought you close. And God may be offering you the opportunity this morning. He may be saying, now's the day. You may, be, you may sense the Holy Spirit of God saying, you, you, I did these things for you. If he did, if you sense that, from what we read in the scripture, I hope you'll trust Christ today. If you need to talk to me, Justin, somebody you trust, please do so. Let's have a word of prayer, all right? We'll be dismissed. Lord, uh, thank you so much uh, for what the scripture says. Uh, thank you uh, that you are a God that is committed to people that can't be God. That you're committed to us no matter what. You're more committed to us than we could ever muster up a commitment to, ourselves, in our, to you from ourselves. And so, Lord, you've called us to put off um, we know where we're at with that. You know where we're at. And uh, only, you, only you working in our lives are going to make us able and capable uh, to walk the way you've called us to walk. And we're thankful that this walk is not a punishment. It's a walk of joy. It's a, a walk of rejoicing. Uh, it's what's best. It's what's glorious. It's what we were designed for. And I pray that for anyone among us that doesn't know Christ, uh, I pray that the, the truth of who Jesus is will break through and shine the light of the gospel on their darkened heart that they might respond and be born again. Uh, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.